Um, when Brian uh, talked to me about this, uh, we were, he told me the event for the day, and uh, it's very exciting. Um, and uh, he kind of gave me carte blanche, but gave me some ideas about where he'd like to go with this. And so we're going to talk this morning about uh, the elder and who he is and what he means to the church and, and how it relates to you personally. Uh, this morning. Um, the date is May 18th, 1860. The, there's a fairly young political party. Uh, they're known as the Republican Party. They haven't been around for very long. And they nominate a unique candidate to run for the office of President of the United States. His name was Abraham Lincoln. He had been a one-term representative but had failed to be reelected. And um, he was known mostly for the fact that in 1858, two years before this, uh, this date that I gave you, he had run uh, in a failed attempt to win uh, the Senate seat for the state of Illinois, and he'd run against a guy named Stephen Douglas. And where, uh, where he made a name for himself was in the debates that he had with Stephen Douglas. They are known today as the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and they were a series of seven debates, and they were quite lengthy, and the subject was mostly on slavery, and believe it or not, those, those debates were printed in the newspaper, and that's where the notoriety came from. Is it wasn't just the people that were there that got to hear them. People got to read what was said, and Lincoln really made a name for himself uh, uh, during those debates because the topic of slavery was quite, uh, quite hot, if you will, politically at that time. And Lincoln really wasn't opposing abolition, the, the removal of slavery, the stopping of slavery, but he was, he was presenting the viewpoint that new states should not be allowed to be slave states. We weren't going to take away the right, the, the states that had them, but no new states. And Kansas was up to be uh, considered as a state, and that's where the hot topic came in, and that's where the Civil War started. I'm quite a, a devotee of history, and the Civil War is one of the areas that I like to read about. And, and uh, when you read about this, you find out that uh, uh, this was, uh, if you think times are tumultuous now, uh, you need to go back and read what it was like at that time. Now, as I bring this around to this morning, I want you to understand that God is in control in all things. Lincoln was one of four candidates on the ballot, four major candidates on the ballot. The the Democrat Party had been split into two factions, the Northern faction who had nominated Stephen Douglas, the man that Lincoln had run against before, There was a man named John C. Breckinridge. He was the Southern Democrat nominee. And then there was a third party called the Constitutional Union. And that uh, nominee was named John Bell. Lincoln was elected with 40% of the popular vote. That's the divisiveness of the politics at that time. But you see, one of the lessons I take from this point in history is that Romans 13.1 tells us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So it wasn't an accident that Lincoln was elected president. At Gospel Fellowship Church, we just uh, last week 
concluded a series studying the life of Joseph that we started last fall. And, and a few weeks ago, I was tasked with bringing a message on chapter 49. I needed to do some research because that's not a chapter that people generally preach on. Chapter 49 is where the old patriarch, Jacob, he's 147, I believe, uh, and he is dying. And he wants to bless each of his sons. That was not just the custom. That was, that was something extremely important in the day that each of his sons would receive a blessing. And what I found fascinating was that the blessings that Joseph, uh, Jacob gave were actually prophecies. And, and I started looking forward in the scriptures to see how they were fulfilled. And I came to Joshua 14. And, and I discovered in verse 2 what I discovered was that when the tribes of, of Israel entered the land of Canaan, they, chapter 2 tells you how, how they divided up the lands. Because if you think about it, you have 12 tribes, and the land of Israel was quite diverse. And who was going to get what? Well, as it turns out, according to Joshua 14, verse 2, it was decided by casting lots. And in today's language, they rolled the dice to determine who got what. But the real stunning point here is that it was God who decided, who directed that it be done that way in the first place. Basically, he was saying, I control your destiny. So that, so that they could not say that it was, it was they that did it or I wanted this one and I didn't get what I wanted. It was God who selected. It was no part of planning or scheming by man. It was God. Well... Here at Gracious Cross, you've just completed the process of selecting a new elder. There's always a temptation to think that there may have been a more spiritual way to undertake the task, but I would encourage you to stop for a moment, take a breath, hold it, let it out nice and easy, and remember, this is a step of faith. One, one lives, uh, our lives are a series of steps of faith, and this is a moment in time when that step is done corporately by all of us here together. If you'll allow me, I'd like to do something ordinary. I'd like to just review what we do as far as the structure of leadership in the church, why we do it, and what it means for each of us. Have you ever considered, have you ever asked yourself why we have elders or overseers in the first place? Um, it depends on your, on your translation, whether you have the word elder or overseer. We can also use the word pastor in there. But why do we have them? I mean, if the Holy Spirit is our spiritual guide and lead, then why do we need someone in a position of authority? After all, I mean, if you think back, I was just talking about the Old Testament. Didn't God originally say that he desired that his nation, Israel, have no king? God was their king. God was their leader. He was their authority. Shouldn't we just pray and study scripture, maybe fast occasionally, in order to ascertain the leading of the Holy Spirit? I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? Well, if you're taking notes, my first point is about the elder as essential to the church. In an online article, um, this tells you about the providence of God. I had just read this article prior to being asked to preach here. In an online article from Crosswalk.com entitled, <laughs> all right, here you go. This is, this is an, it, it, I love the title. Six reasons doing church away from church isn't church. 
That was the title of the article, but I was able to get one point out of here that just resounded very well with what, why we have elders in the first place. And that is that um, a, the writer makes the assertion that in the New Testament, a group of believers is not called by the title church until there's a pastoral leadership established and enacted. Until that point, they're groups of believers. They're families. They meet in the household of so-and-so. If you, if you go to uh, the, what the uh, author used was the example in Acts 16, where Paul is in Philippi, and they refer to two different groups of believers as the household of, or meeting in the household of. And while that on its own is not necessarily substantial, we, if you skip ahead, and, and one of the key passages for this morning is Titus chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read verses, or I have, I'm referring to verses 5 through 9. And Paul is writing to Titus, Titus is on the island of Crete, and Paul is writing to Titus and giving him his mission, his instructions, why are you there? And he tells him that his mission is to establish elders or bishops, and, and Paul uses both of those words, in order to what? To set in order the things that are lacking. And that's our key, that's, that's, that's a first key point of why we have leadership in the first point. The point that the author is making is that Paul didn't consider the church to be uh, ecclesiologically complete. It didn't consider the church to be an established church until leadership was established. Indeed, Paul's letter to the Corinthians that, that we have entitled 1 Corinthians, because it might have been the second letter, but it's still 1 Corinthians, it's directed at the heart of the carnality found in their church, and that was a lack of spiritual order, a spiritual focus, spiritual worship, and it all came down to a lack of spiritual leadership in the church. As the church leadership there was not functioning as it was intended, Paul, as the founding elder of the church, was exercising responsible leadership in instruction and in discipline. And without that intervention, the local church in Corinth might well have been destroyed by the sin of hedonism. And if you speak hedonism, me first. Everything I want, hedonism. When we consider when you think of orderly, when you consider the Godhead, we almost immediately have to recognize order and hierarchy. I mean, all creation testifies to order. And when order gives way to chaos, destruction is not far away. Have you ever been to a meeting, group of people meeting to form some sort of organized structure, but leadership has not been established. I mean, think about it. You're sitting in a room. You've all showed up, and you say, we're all, we're all going to be here, and we're here to decide the certain task, and there is no leadership there. I've been there when nobody's speaking up and for whatever reason, and, and nobody's stepping up to take the reins of leadership, and there's this extremely awkward atmosphere. You're sitting there, everybody looking at each other, right, until someone finally volunteers or is appointed or volunteered, and it's expected when a leader is, is chosen that order and purpose will soon follow. See, that's the human condition. Left without leadership, we will often devolve into chaos. It's, it's the microcosm of our need for divine leadership. 
It's God by his very nature that will bring order to a chaotic world on the day of the Lord who will bring order to your life and my life because it's what we need. And without him, we don't have it. Years ago, um, in, in the earlier days of Gospel Fellowship Church, we had a man who would occasionally lead worship. We have worship. We have families that, that lead worship and kind of rotate. And, and he, would, he would lead every once in a while. And he was someone who believed that we really shouldn't have a lot of pre-planned structure. And that we should allow the Holy Spirit opportunity to direct the service. The services were often disjointed and chaotic. He thought he was being open to the moving of the Holy Spirit, but looking back, it seemed that he was actually depending on the Holy Spirit to do what he was supposed to be doing. As a worship leader, he was supposed to lead in worship and allow the Holy Spirit to move in the midst of worship. But he wasn't. The elder is for the church a stabilizer, that which sometimes directs, sometimes guides, but always leads by example, always is ready to exhort, and always encourages. We as uh, Westerners, most certainly as Americans, we tend to bristle at the thought of authority at times. I mean, we're rugged individualists. Isn't that what our country was founded on? But the lie to that thinking is the most basic one of all. Everyone is under the authority of someone or some organization. I was, I was thinking you have kids here. I don't know if, if the kids are listening, but kids, if you're listening, your mom and your dad have bosses. They have people that, that are over them, right, that are their bosses, that, that, that are in charge of them. And those people have people over them. I mean, even the President of the United States has to answer to Congress, even if he refuses to. And if he doesn't, he has to answer to the people every four years, right? Folks, even Jesus Christ is under the authority of the Father. If you go to Matthew 26, it's a very familiar passage. Jesus in the garden, praying the night he is arrested. And what does he say? Not my will, your will, Father. He submits to the Father because the Father is the ultimate authority. We simply relish that authority and recognize the wisdom and wonder of it if we really love the Lord. But assuming that we begin to understand that it's God who established a hierarchy of authority, it's important that perhaps we change our sightline or perspective or even our vernacular concerning this topic. You say, what do you mean? Because to be more doctrinally correct, an elder or overseer isn't so much our church boss or authority as it is really the elder just holds a higher degree of responsibility when he, when he, when he operates in that capacity. And he will be held to a higher account for what has been entrusted to him. So let's look at the office of elder. And that would be point number two. When I was uh, thinking about elder, I went to 1 Timothy 
And I had been reading about this, and, and, and there's actually an interesting phrase in 1 Timothy 3.1 that just kind of gloss right over and don't even think about as we, go, as we think about what an elder is. It says, if anyone aspires the office of overseer. Another word translated from the Greek is desires, to want or to work for. I looked at my Greek interlinear translation, and aspires is the direct word from the Greek. I mean, isn't it interesting? It doesn't say the elder is called. I mean, we in the church have a tendency to continue traditions, and that's one of them, called. And yet the scripture doesn't say called. It says desires or aspires. Why is that? Now, I'm not, I don't feel myself to be the intellectual in the room here. There are people here that have a lot more uh, uh, depth of knowledge on certain parts of Scripture especially than me. But it seems clear to me that the Scriptures were, when the Scriptures were written, there weren't any seminaries. Right? And, and, And the elders were chosen from among the church body, very much like you've done so here. A huge benefit of this, if you haven't thought about it, is that your overseer, your elder, knows you knows the body and is part of the body. The, the, I don't know about you, I was raised in the church and the traditional Western model has pastors coming in from other places to serve, having been called, but not necessarily having a calling of the Holy Spirit, but being called by a higher authority, usually a bishop or a superintendent or someone like that, they've been called to come and serve at a specific church. Our church seemed to have a new pastor about every two to four years. While there are some benefits to this, there are marked obstacles to overcome in leading the church, such as local culture and language. We were talking about this, I was telling my wife. I said, our, our oldest son uh, recently moved to Texas. You go to Texas and ask for a Coke, they're going to ask you which one you want. Because a Coke means soda. It doesn't mean Coca-Cola. That's the language down there. Each body has their own language, the things that they understand that are common among them. You have the history of the church and the individual parishioners themselves. Not to mention, if you're coming in as a a pastor from another area, you have a lack of meaningful relationships in the body already, and you have to establish those. The church organization that I came from prior to attending Gospel Fellowship Church often pilfered a serving pastor from another church. I use the word pilfer because I was a part of that process uh, before we had moved on, and that's what it felt like. That's what we were doing. Usually the larger churches took from the smaller churches. We referred to this as a calling, but the real calling was done by phone. Now, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that the work of the Holy Spirit wasn't involved, because it was. There was a lot of prayer and solemn consideration involved, but it still meant that some churches benefited and some were left wanting. And while I'm not denigrating the Western model, I personally prefer much, much prefer raising up elders from among the body for the very reason that they're already an intricate member of your body. That is a blessing. One caveat or exhortation on this subject would be, as Terry is being confirmed and installed as an elder today, while your respect level rightly is adjusted, don't let your love and friendship alter your relationship with your brother. Don't change any of that. Lean in. Don't lean away. 
I remember having one of those light bulb over the head moments, you know, the cartoon deals like, aha. It was, mom, it, was, it, was, it was a few weeks after I was installed as an elder, after having served as a deacon for around four to five years, and we'd been to the church a couple years before that, and we were sitting at this picnic table at our annual church camp out with uh, some of our oldest friends in the church. They were, they were one of the first families that when we started attending, attending Gospel Fellowship that they came and just grabbed us and just pulled us in and just, just loved on us. And it was our kids got all, you know, it was just, it was a wonderful relationship. And the wife is, is this really godly woman. She has a lot of wisdom, and, and uh, uh, we use her a lot, especially in teaching uh, women and that sort of thing. And, and she, we're sitting there, and she says uh, something similar to it. Well, since you're an elder, we'll defer to you. And it's like, whoa. I step back for a second, and it's like I realized she meant this as an honest statement of respect, but it reminded me that they saw me somewhat differently now, even though I was literally the same guy. The real test came when it was apparent, though, that they loved me just the same, maybe more. That was the real test, and that was, that was the real blessing. See, elders don't need isolation. They need more love. They need more friendship as they carry more responsibility. More on that in a minute. This uh, past September, I retired after more than 25 years in the fire service as a firefighter and a paramedic. And it was a unique and cherished experience. I, I, I loved my career. It was, uh, it was a wonderful thing. I served with people who advanced to high levels of leadership. One of the guys I was hired with actually uh, is cer- currently serving as the uh, assistant chief. And we're the second largest fire department in the Northwest. And, and so, you know, I had all these people around me. And I, I can recall the terminology, though, that we used for those who left the line. The line being those who, who you see in the fire engines and the rescues and that sort of thing running around. And, and they'd, they'd left the line. They became part of the management team. And they seemed to forget what it was like to be one of those actually delivering emergency services to the public. We used to say that they must have been taken in the back room and given some sort of transfusion, you know, to that management transfusion so that they forgot what it was like. And I, I knew then, just like I realize now, that this is too simplistic a viewpoint. They had, they had more responsibility at the time. But what some were able to do was remember the job that we were doing while they took on new responsibilities. And that made them leaders that were respected even when they made decisions that weren't popular. Well, the elder is, is much more than a leader. He's also a member of the body. I was thinking about this back to the Civil War. We've lost the real sense, the sense of what a real leader is uh, in our culture. Whether you know it or not, the Civil War was the last war where generals led out front of the troops. Weaponry had advanced to the point where that became counterproductive. I mean, it was too easy to pick off the generals, right? Solution, the generals now lead from the rear or from the safer zone where the fighting's not active. I can recall reading about it and then seeing they, they portrayed it in the movie Gettysburg where the general's out front and, and the troops, so there's smoke and, and the terrain's a little uneven and the general takes his sword out, takes his hat off, puts it on the end of the sword and has it up like this and he's waving because he wants his troops to see him so that they will follow him into battle. You know, for us today... 
in the body of Christ, our leaders need to lead from the front. Our elders, our pastors, our overseers should shoulder the load alongside those that they're leading. I was thinking about this. Jesus Christ never said, do as I say, not as I do. His message was always, do as I do. Period. Because he walked the walk all the way to the cross. Literally and spiritually, he walked the walk. He modeled for us the life that we're to live. Scripture gives clear qualifications for considering a man to be positioned as an elder. Paul, writing to Timothy in his first letter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, it's, it's a passage I'm sure that you've all gotten familiar with if you've gone through this process of, of selecting an elder, then you've read through this. Husband of one wife. Curious, Scripture doesn't command Christians to only have one wife, just elders and deacons. That, came, that comes later. He's to be a person who exercises self-control and exhibits godly character that would be modeled for the church. But these are qualifications. I believe that there is one overriding spiritual quality that puts all of this in the proper perspective. And that brings me to the main point this morning, point number three. And that is that an elder is literally a servant in the kingdom. And in so being, he has to have a servant's heart. If you have your Bibles, Matthew 20, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And um, in Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28, this is what he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In our fallen and broken world, people scramble and fight to get to the top with the hope that they can be the ones to give the orders and let the little people do the work. There's this fantasy, unhelpfully advanced by the media and, and certain loud voices stirring dissension, that those on top do very little while raking in the money and the benefits. This may, in fact, be the case for a select few, but the reality is that most executives, most leaders of organizations, leaders of businesses, work as hard or harder than those underneath them. It's even more true in the kingdom of God. If you think about it, Jesus literally is saying that the world is 180 degrees out of phase with heaven. It is an entire opposite of the way it is in heaven. Have you ever sung the song, If You Want to Be Great in God's Kingdom, Learn to Be the Servant of All? That's, that's a simplistic uh, uh, verse of what that scripture just talks about. We are entirely out of phase with heaven because we elevate and we, we worship people with power and authority and, and, and influence. And God says, that's not the heart I'm looking for. Rather than the leader looking at the follower and asking, what have you done for me lately, which is kind of where, where the mantra is in, in the business world, 
in God's church, the leader is asking, what can I do for you? Humility and a heart to serve are the characteristics of the man of God. Ego, ego plays a small part, if at all, in the, in the kingdom of God. Because it's never me first, but God, what would you have me do? The elder is called to lead in service. And like, like the general who leads from the front, the elder is to model a servant's heart and encourage and inspire the people to develop that same servant's heart. This is a seeming paradox from an earthly perspective of the, of the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. The elder, uh, an elder is always training up new leaders because we're all growing in learning to be servants of Christ. The life of the body of the church is service. The fallacy of the Western superchurch, if I can call it that, those that are held up as successful in the eyes of society, is that if most of the people are just coming to be emotionally and somewhat spiritually entertained, then they aren't really doing church the way Christ designed it to be done. This is not meant as a statement against large churches, but actually is more of an indictment of pastors who are not, they're not calling their people to a lifestyle of being a servant of Christ. We spoke of Paul's letter to Titus. And in the second chapter, verse 7, he says that Titus is to be a model of good works. If we, uh, if we understand that Paul's letters are a type of symbiosis, what I mean by that is that taken singularly and taken together, they are literally the heart of Paul and, his, and giving to the people. He's literally pouring his heart out to them. So if we, if we can do that singularly and together, then in 1 first, uh, first, uh, Timothy 5.25, Paul tells Timothy that all our works, both good and otherwise, will not remain hidden. So that when Paul tells Titus that he's to be a model of good works, we can assume that Paul means that those good works will be seen and will be a testimony and a model to be recreated in the church. But if we take that to its logical conclusion, and God is the very definition of logical, uh, then that means that as parishioners, as members of the church, you are doing the same thing as well. You are modeling good works for those who see you. See, we don't live in a spiritual vacuum. When you walk out the door this morning, you're still the church. You are the church to the people that you meet. Now, if I can stop for a moment and address Terry. There, there you are. It's kind of bright over there. Um, I want to I address you specifically, brother, because a leader leads... And that means he steps out front and says, follow me. He does not drive people from behind. That, that example I gave of the Civil War general with the hat on his sword and, and being that, that, that rallying point, that's what we're talking about. If, you aren't, if, you don't, if you're not followed, rest assured, you're still not alone. And if you're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, um, you don't need to worry about who's following you. You just need to lead. Uh, also in Romans 13.8, Paul has just talked about rendering tribute, custom, fear, and honor to all that it's due. 
And then he says, owe no man anything but to love one another. That is the one thing we are to be indebted to each other for. We are to owe everyone love in the kingdom of God. Make sure that you strive to never shortchange loving your brothers and sisters. It's a tall order to be sure, but it is fundamental in leading in the church of Christ. I can tell you that if there is one area that God has stretched me more than in any other area of being an elder, it's in learning to love my brothers and sisters because they're all different. And, and, and if you'll pardon me for being a little crude, everybody is somebody's weirdo, okay? But we still love anyway, period. You learn to love the people. And, and see, the whole idea is, is that love isn't love if you're loving them the way you want to love them. Love is love when you're loving them in the way that matters to them, that affects their heart. So, to the congregation, what's the message this morning? Two things. First one, love your elder. Love your elders. The responsibility carries with it potentials for great joy, but also great heartache. We, uh, we had a situation arise at our church several years ago. The elders named specifically and their wives were publicly accused on Facebook, on social media, of a grievous sin. The details are really less important than the actual fact that what we were accused of, it actually happened at a different church at a different time where none of us were anywhere near or involved in any way. But the person who made the accusation had pretty much just assumed, had, had put it on us, right? Because we were there. We were, we were present. Needless to say, it was an extremely stressful several, several weeks where we chose to deal with it publicly within our church body. We had several all-church meetings so that we could lay out what we could legally lay out, and, uh, and that was important. We, we talked to a lawyer and to make sure that we didn't step outside of legal bounds. We shared with the body everything we could, and we allowed them to ask questions until there were no more questions because we wanted them to know that we had nothing to hide. Our church body actually rallied around us. They supported us in prayer. They never gave us cause to feel abandoned. They asked tough questions, but they were all questions that were done in love because they were trying to protect us. It subsequently was shown to be this misguided youth. She was, she was trying to be part of the Me Too movement. And, uh, uh, and again, it was directed at the wrong church, wrong people. What I needed was what I received, love and support from our church. We never received a public apology or correction, but that's not what we needed. We just needed the love and the support of the people in our church. Don't assume that your elders or your deacons are not in need of your prayers and your love simply because they're more spiritual than you? Not at all. I had a pastor say something to me that has stuck with me and become something of a philosophy for me to the point where my wife could probably say it if I started it. Unexpressed gratitude has no 
value. Think about that for a second. Unexpressed gratitude has no value. What good does it do to love and appreciate a person if they aren't shown that love and if they aren't told of that love? Second point, emulate your elder. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 uh, is, is saying not once but two times that the Thessalonians should be imitating the work that he is doing there. If Jesus in Matthew 20 was saying that a servant heart, a servant attitude was valued highly in the kingdom of God, then that means that we are to emulate him. He demonstrated his love for us in dying for the very sin we are totally guilty of. Do you realize when he talked about greater love has no man than than he laid down his life for his friends? Do you realize he said that less than 24 hours before he was hanging on a cross? He, He didn't just walk, he didn't just talk the talk. He literally demonstrated the truth in what he was saying. Show me a greater servant's heart than the heart of our Lord. If I'm correct and not straying from the scripture, and I truly believe this is to be consistent with the word, then we all should be doing the work of love and service that an elder is modeling for us. We, we say in our fellowship, and I, uh, talking with Terry, I, I heard some of the similar kinds of language that in recognizing a deacon or an elder for nomination, they, it's one of the reasons is because they're already seen doing that kind of work already. It's just part of who they are hint, that means they're not serving. I mean, they're already serving, but not as an elder or a deacon, just serving our Lord by serving the body of Christ. In essence, we should all be elders in training, with an overriding difference being that those serving as elders have more responsibility and more accountability, but we should all be doing the same things. We should all be learning in the same way. We should all be striving to love and to serve. It's not the sole responsibility of the elder to disciple people. Get trained in how to do it doctrinally correct and lean on your elder for that training and for support. But nowhere in scripture does it say that only church leaders can teach. We have um, uh, two people. Yeah, one of uh, three, it was three and now one of them is now an elder. We have two people that preach occasionally that are not elders. Because we don't believe that the word of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Bible resides only in those that have the title elder. We believe, we, we actually have what's called an open mic. It sits right up front here, not when we're preaching, but when we're singing. And, and if someone comes into the center of the aisle and the worship leader recognizes them, in between songs they come up and they'll give a word of encouragement. They'll give a word of scripture. They'll give a word of, of, of wisdom for the congregation. Why? Because the Spirit of God does not rest solely in those who preach. It rests in those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. I remember as a young man in a small church, we were in a meeting. It wasn't a church much, it was a church much like this one. And, and we were in a business meeting. And, and, and the pastor was trying to convey the need for, for those in the church to minister to the lost. And one well-intentioned 
but highly spiritually ignorant man said, that's what we pay you for. I know he doesn't have that viewpoint now. I'm not sure that's going to be a good excuse when we stand before God in that day. It was the pastor's job. It was the elder's job. As I wrap this up, I want to remind us all that we all serve in the body of Christ. Um, one of my pet peeves is people that, that preach and want to talk about 1 Corinthians 13 without talking about what comes before 1 Corinthians 13 because you've taken it entirely out of context. 1 Corinthians 12 is where the Apostle Paul uses the analogy of the body as showing, uh, as a way of showing that it takes many people with differing gifts and responsibilities to further the work of the body of Christ. The problem with the Corinthians was is that they all wanted the flashy gifts. They all liked the preachers that were the most flowery and, and, and were the most, you know, highly erudite. And, and because that's what their culture said was the, the best. The best actors, the best speakers, the, the most flashy gifts. That's what they were after. When it came time for communion... They, they called it the meal, and, and, and they would rush up to try and fill their bellies as opposed to what it was designed for in the first place. And Paul's talking to them about how each one of them has a gift, that the, the Holy Spirit doles out these gifts to different people as the Holy Spirit decides, not as we decide, but as the Holy Spirit decides. And he's saying the, the body works together. There's no suggestion that one is more important than the other. In fact, Paul uses absurdity to further that point. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? So words, if everybody said, well, the eye is the best one, well, that's pretty good, except you're going to walk around and not know what anybody's saying because you're not going to be able to hear what's going on. He's addressing the self-serving attitudes of these Corinthian church that, that has caused the services to be reduced to shoving matches to see who can get to the Lord's table. He's also addressing the idea that people are using spiritual gifts as status symbols and a way to look down on those less fortunate in the spiritual gift department from their opinion. But what this gives us is the wonderful exhortation about love and how we are to pursue the kind of servant heart that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 20. That's what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. When I'm tempted to think that I got the short end of the stick at the church business meeting, I, I'm to remember that what I truly need to be is pursuing, is pursuing to love Christ to the point that I love others. And that leads me to have a true servant's heart. As an elder, it's, it's what we're called to do. We aren't necessarily being called to be an elder like we talked about before, but we are called to love the body of Christ individually and collectively. Paul starts chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians with the words, pursue love. If you as a body, individually and collectively, do this, folks, you're going to be known as the church that loves, period. You're going to be known as the church that when people, when they walk in here, they're going to go, there is something about you guys. You love. 
there's this, there's this atmosphere in here that is welcoming. My challenge to the elders here and to our church and to myself is to have a servant's heart, to lead in love. My challenge to the body is to have a servant's heart and to love. The Holy Spirit used this simple ministry and changed the world 2,000 years ago. I believe it's the only way the world will be changed today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the gift of elders and deacons, Lord. I thank you because um, they're necessary, Lord. And they are tools and instruments that you use to achieve your purposes. I pray for my brother Terry, Lord, as I pray for Brian, that, that humility would be, humility and love would be the two things that they, when people, the first words out of their mouths when they're asked to describe them, Lord, that they're humble, that they love the people, that they love you. I thank you, Lord, that, that, that Diane and I could come down to a place where we know few, but walk in and be loved and, and, and to see the love that the people have for each other and for you. I thank you for that. I pray that you would increase that. I pray that it would, it would flow out from this place, Lord, that it would flow out to those people walking in and out of this, of this uh, rec hall, Lord, that there would be something that would just... It would, whether it brought them in or not, Lord, they would, not, they would be affected by the fact that there is the love of Jesus Christ here in this room. We thank you, Lord. We praise your name this morning. You are the one who is worthy of to be praised in your name.